Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Electricity bosses have spent the day defending themselves in the Doyle as bills rise for the nation. The price increases we have had to announce over the past 18 months have been as a direct consequence of the unprecedented increases in international wholesale gas prices. Are our communications under threat deep under the Irish Sea? We take a look at why the Irish Navy is being told to sort out its defences to protect just that. And I speak to the man who has spent the last 112 days rowing across the Atlantic Ocean. There's nothing going to stop you getting across this ocean. Absolutely nothing. And it tried, but it, it couldn't. Uh, it couldn't stop me in the end. Join the conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. tonight. It has only been a week since the government's 11 billion euro budget, but questions are swirling around some of their plans to pay for it all. Top of the list, a concrete levy. Our Paul Colgan sat down with Finance Minister Pascal Donoghue and asked him about just that. This is one of the few revenue raising measures that are contained in our budget. And the reason why we are raising revenue is the need to find billions of euro to deliver commitments that we should have, and we do have. Uh, we have many, many homes that we need to rebuild, homes that are crumbling uh, due to uh, no fault at all of their owners. It's for reasons that are beyond our control. Uh, I accept the state has additional commitments there that we have to fulfil, but those additional commitments will involve billions of euro of spending. And there has been criticism that you're essentially lumping the bill on new home buyers that builders, developers will simply pass it down the line and it could push up house prices even further. This will only have a, a very um, modest effect, if any, on house pricing. Uh, I, do affect, I do accept, of course, there are always risks. It would be dishonest to pretend that there are not, but there are other risks as well. In terms of what you've seen across the Irish Sea over the past week or so, and the reaction of the markets to what the British government announced in terms of the mini budget. Were you alarmed at any stage? Because it does seem at one point last week, before the Bank of England stepped in, that there was something close to a sudden stop, not dissimilar to what Ireland experienced not so long ago. We, we, we've been monitoring developments closely in the United Kingdom, uh, as we do in any other uh, economy that has a material effect on the prospects and performance of the Irish economy. But the risks and difficulties that I did see beginning to develop within the United Kingdom for me just underlined the importance of what we are doing. It's up to the UK to decide what is the appropriate budgetary strategy for them. I'm not going to comment on it, that's their call. 
Uh, but it's up to the Irish government and to myself and Minister McGrath to determine what's the right budgetary strategy for Ireland. And not borrowing to pay for interventions within our economy and setting aside €6 billion Euro in a national reserve fund. Uh, the importance of doing uh, those measures has been underlined to me as a result of the reminder that we have had regarding the importance of financial markets and the role they play in uh, generating economic confidence around the country. In terms of your own position as president of the Eurogroup, when are you going to have to make a call on that? When will a final decision be made? When will you have to tell your colleagues here what you're intending on doing? Well, that's a matter for the, the party leaders to decide. Uh, my mandate takes me all the way up to the end of this year. The party leaders are very much aware of the importance of representation within the Eurogroup and the work that I do representing Ireland and the work that I do on behalf of Europe and they'll make a right decision on this at the right point. There was a big gathering in Dublin over the weekend discussing a united Ireland further down the road and, and the Tánaiste spoke at that. At some point in the future, does an Irish government need to start considering the impact on the public finances on a contingency level and start preparing in the event, perhaps, that there will be a united Ireland on the horizon? So the economic dimension of the argument regarding the United Ireland is a really important dimension to us. And that will need to be given consideration by uh, the government and by the people of Ireland. Uh, but I do think we're quite a few phases away from that. We can see already on our island the many, many positive benefits of an all-island economy, whether it be with regard to energy, uh, whether it had been with regard to Irish food before we begin to see the effect of Brexit and even still with making the case for foreign direct investment into our country. It's apparent to me there are already really strong and positive aspects to the development of an all-island economy and to intensified economic cooperation. Uh, what is important is that at the right point in time, we do then give a proper economic consideration to a really important political and social argument but I do think what needs to happen before we get to that point is we need to continue with the debate that is underway. Pascal Donoghue speaking to Paul Colgan earlier today. Well, I'm joined now in studio by Daniel McConnell, political editor of The Irish Examiner, Socialist TD Mick Barry, Fine Gael TD Alan Farrell, and Murren Lynch, Senior Research Officer at the ESRI. You're all very welcome to the programme, uh, Daniel. We discussed the concrete levy at length on the programme uh, last night, but the Minister clearly not returning there. Mm. Is the political pressure mounting on this? Uh, will it be scrapped? Will it be altered? Or is it going gung-ho? Well, I think it's very clear. All the language through last weekend from the Fianna Fáil Ardesh and elsewhere was that you know, they're open to listen to the concerns and the concerns of backbenchers like Alan and others, and particularly those who are maybe closer to the Mikey issue. Um, but it's not just about Mikey, it's about pyrite as well. Like, so, I mean, there, there are bigger issues at play. I can't see as of right now that you'll see a, a full scrapping of it. The sort of talk I was getting over the weekend is that they might look at altering the, the parameters around it. But I mean, you know, the finance bill will, you know, will, will, will prove the nature of that. But I, I suppose, you know, the teacher was very clear in the doll today. He says, you know, like the opposition are ranting and raving around this. And, but like he says, either the taxpayer will have to pay for this or the industry will have to pay for it. It's one or the other. Like. Um, so there's a difficult choice either way in, in relation to this. So, I mean, if, if the levy doesn't happen, it'll, be, it'll just be paid for out of general taxation.
and uh, the opposition also calling for a levy at some point, wasn't there, on the uh, construction industry? Yeah, I mean, I mean, there, there are inconsistencies here, and I, I, I would think that you know some people would do well to remember what they said only a few weeks ago. All right. Look, it's been a terrible time for electricity and gas consumers with bills rising month on month. And today, electricity bosses faced an Eractus committee to explain those prices and why profits aren't reaching down to the consumer. The price increases we have had to announce over the past 18 months have been a, a, as a direct consequence of the unprecedented increases in international wholesale gas prices. As we operate as a standalone energy supplier in the market, we have no choice but to increase our prices given the quantum of increases in our costs. So increased profits from ESB's generation business cannot be used to offset costs incurred by Electric Ireland. However, group profits are invested in critical networks, renewable generation and other important energy infrastructure, as well as being used to pay tax and dividends to the Irish government. Right, so that was the head of Electric Ireland speaking uh, earlier today. Murren, give us a quick explainer if you can, as to how the market works, the wholesale market versus the retail or supplier side of the market. Yeah, so there are two types of electricity companies in Ireland, really. There are electricity companies who generate electricity. So they would have power plants like gas plants, coal plants, or renewable plants such as wind and solar. And they use them to produce electricity and they sell that electricity into a great big pool, which we call the wholesale market. Then there's another type of electricity company. And what they do is they buy electricity from that pool and they sell it on to final consumers. Um, residential consumers, small businesses, large energy users. Uh, there are some companies that have a presence in both markets. So there are some companies that have generators that sell into the wholesale market and retail arms that buy out of the, out of the wholesale market. So that would be SSE, Energy, and those kind of companies. There are some companies that only operate in the retail market. So that would be the likes of Pinergy. And there are indeed a few companies that only operate in the generation market. So one example would be Board Namona. Okay, so Electric Ireland owned by ESB, they're the generator. They have profits of, I think, in excess of 350 million for the first six months of these years. Why can't those profits be used to depress consumer prices that Electric Ireland is charging? Yeah, so ESB Group is uh, an exception in that ESB has a presence in the generation market, they're called ESB PowerGen, and they have a presence in the retail market called Electric Ireland. However, they are precluded, as you said, from passing profits from one arm to the other. And there's actually- There's regulations there. There's regulations there, and there's actually good reason for that. And that's because ESB PowerGen is still the biggest <coughs> player on the generation side, and Electric Ireland is still the biggest player on the retail side. And if they were able to pass those costs and profits up and down, then that would create an unfair advantage versus other companies. And ultimately, it would increase costs for the consumer. All right. So, Daniel, we heard, as I said, Electric Ireland there today, the tone was very much, look, we are at the mercy of the wholesale market. Our prices have gone up a thousand percent. We have to put up consumer prices. Yeah, and they were, you know, some of the detail that Pat Fennan of Electric Ireland gave, you know, they were, they were talking about, you know, increases of up to a thousand percent, you know, <clears throat> cost of, you know, for, that would you know normally be in around 300 million now up to close to 2 billion this year. Um, and ultimately what they're saying is that these costs have to be passed on, that there's literally, no, there is no, but what he did say was that, you know, they hedge their numbers out anywhere between 18 and 24 months and ultimately they're preventing or they're buffering the consumer from these very large volatile shocks but what we are likely to see is a sustained you know number of these increases over, over the, the, the period ahead 
Um, but I, I think, you know, there were some pretty testy exchanges with, with some of the politicians because I don't think, you know, primarily a lot of the opposition TDs weren't buying that argument that you can't necessarily, why can't we get some relief? Why can't there be some relief? And when you're talking, you know, like the ESB were less than convincing, I, I, I thought, you know, when they start talking about financial instruments, that it's not real profit, it's kind of a paper profit as opposed to cash in the bank. Uh, and ultimately, that has been reinvested and paid in tax yeah, and paid in dividends. Yeah, and, and it's a dividend to the, to the state and stuff like that. Whereas, you, you know, and, and the argument quickly this afternoon and this evening has shifted to, well, if they can't get any relief on the kind of direct upfront side, what you're now seeing is the government scrambling to kind of say, well, we're going to make sure through, you know, supports like, you know, community supports, welfare supports, through MABs and the Vincent de Paul, that people, and particularly those who are on, say, pay-as-you-go meters, won't be left short this winter. It seems kind of perverse that you're having to kind of go round the long way to get the, to, to, to kind of get a result. Uh, Mick, what did you make of Electric Ireland's <clears throat> comments today? I wasn't impressed by them. €679 million Euro profit last year, €2 million Euro profit per day. Uh, two, million. Two, two million. Two million per day. Yeah. Yep. Big increases uh, for Electric Ireland customers in gas and electricity. And many of those uh, customers really to the pin of their collar, trying to keep their head uh, above the water. And the ESB are saying, we have to play by the rules. Uh, you play by the rules in normal times. These are not normal times. It's an emergency situation. And the rule book should be ripped up because who is the rule book there to benefit? I think Merlin kind of indicated uh, that the private companies uh, who are trying to compete with the state company uh, would be disadvantaged uh, if the ESB were to take actions that would benefit the ordinary consumers. Uh, so why are the companies being prioritised over the needs of the customers? Alan, is that not a fair argument? Look, if the regulation is there at the moment that says, ESB, you're making these record profits but we can't pass any of those on to the consumers because Electric Ireland is a separate entity. It's time to look at those regulations and change them for, for emergency times. Well, it's, it's competition law, uh, so it's a little bit more complex than Mick has set out. Um, I, I wish it were the case that we could simply take uh, from ESB and put it into the Department of Social Protection or knock it off the top of the unit price for both gas and electricity. But the market doesn't work like that, unfortunately. Uh, so competition law is actually there to protect consumers. Uh, if we were to ignore it, we'd end up being fined and it would be a hefty fine uh, because it would be, offer up uh, unfair competition in the market. And the other companies supplying Ireland could quite rightly and would most likely successfully take a case against Ireland, not the companies, but Ireland itself, which means we'd end up paying fines. But do you accept that the profits that we heard today are excessive They're obscene. and unfair? There, there's absolutely no point in pretending that it's not absolutely obscene what is happening. I made the point today that of the 360-odd million euro after-tax profit that they made for the first six months of the year, they offered up a paltry three million towards hardship. I think that's a disgrace. Now, I should point out, ESB... Electric Ireland in front of an Oireachtas committee is very unfair because they are not the major, they're not the main players. No. They're only two of the, of the players and they're only there because they're uh, state-owned. And, and we so saw that, other oh suppliers, gosh, they've also posted oh, 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 record Absolutely, but too. other suppliers, well, they're, they're, they're not owned by the Irish taxpayer. They, they are co-owned, I believe, with British Gas and another organisation. But, but it's just, a, it's but, another but the generator bottom, and supplier that's making record but, profits. But the bottom line, I suppose, is what taxpayers, what bill payers are seeing is fluctuating standing charges, which are incredibly frustrating, escalating unit costs. And the only position that government can adopt is to go in and offer direct supports to people to meet those rising demands. That's like the 
three 200 euro energy credits that would be provided over the next six months, in addition to the 200 that was already provided. And I could go on and everybody knows what was in the budget in terms of 11 billion euros that is being reinvested back into the economy. There will be supports. So Mick, do you buy that? Look, the government's hands are tied here. If they did anything about this, they would end up being sued. No, I don't buy that. Um, the, the, the state can take a dividend from the ESB. Uh, we need to look at what that the wasn't the question, Mick. To be fair, we, we need to Could look. Could they at, increase that dividend? We, we we need to look at what the size uh, of the dividend is. So right? so di the, di sorry, Mick. The dividend is completely separate to what we're discussing. What we're talking about is uh, unit prices of gas and electricity being charged by an Irish-owned company. No, uh, what a we're dividend, talking about a dividend, is how... a dividend on the profit being reinvested back into the Irish economy, given directly to the revenue, is completely different. But I think what we're, what, what what we're generally talking about <clears throat> is the fact that you say it's obscene that these companies yes. are making these profits All and that them. none of it is being passed on to the consumer. Yeah. So how can the government tackle that? Well, Alan is right in one sense. I'm going to uh, shock the nation by saying that I agree with Alan on one point. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, I feel a bit sweaty, Daniel, in making this point, but I'll agree with him on this point because he says there would be a difficulty with breaking the rules uh, and uh, freezing the prices for the consumers uh, because it would go against the regulations of the market. And that is precisely the case. That's the price cap the, that you're the, talking the, about. The, the, yes, the, the, the capitalist market is putting the interest here of companies that are competing with the ESB, like, okay. for example, SSE Electricity, which made more than a billion okay. pound in okay. profit we'll, last uh, year. Marie, real quick, price caps, do they work? Uh, there are different ways to do price caps. You can do it good ways, you can do it bad ways. Um, the European Commission is examining um, uh, price cap proposals and I think whatever we do, we should do it in line with whatever the European Commission comes up with for a number of reasons. Um, the, the thing about price caps is high prices mean something. They drive efficient investment and efficient operation, but there comes a point at which the price goes so high that there's no economic benefit anymore and all it's doing is pushing up prices for consumers. Okay. So if you set the price cap there, it makes sense. However, if we were to do our own thing, implement our own price cap, what that would do is that would make our electricity artificially cheap and we'd end up exporting way more electricity to Great Britain and we'd end up essentially subsidising the electricity consumption of Great Britain. Mm. All right, um, I just want to talk about another issue that came up today, uh, Daniel, and that was the number of customers in arrears, 125,000 mm. customers in arrears and ongoing discussions about this moratorium from disconnections yeah. and who it actually applies to. Yeah, so last week we heard the Taoiseach basically saying that no vulnerable customer would be disconnected this winter. What we heard at the committee today was a very different definition, a much more narrow definition that I, you know, someone who is vulnerable is medically vulnerable. It's Not a, financially vulnerable. No, no. It's a much smaller, much narrower pot, pot of people. And ultimately what that means is that, you know, and that's the CRU, the, the regulator, the, the energy regulator's own definition. If the government want to expand that, they're going to have to change the rules. But at the moment, but what we did see tonight, the teacher made a point in the doll, and what we're reporting in the morning is there essentially is this big scramble going on by Eamon Ryan to ensure that no one will be disconnected, but there's nothing set in stone just yet. Alan, there is a statutory so, gap here, isn't so there? Not in relation to that, no. Um, I, I think, look, the, the CRU posted in August as to what it was they were going to do in relation to customers that were in arrears. So they've changed a number of their proposals. Yeah. They're up on their website. I drew them down this evening when I was coming. But does it include people who are financially vulnerable? So the, the current uh, disconnection moratorium extends uh, up to the end of February. Yeah. Um, it covers vulnerable customers registers as being critically dependent on electrical yeah, power Yeah, but that's medical. Devices. Again, I'm going to ask, Again, does it cover medical. if you're financially vulnerable? So the financial hardship 
So that's separate. So this is this is a separate provision that CRU, and as I said, it's on their website as we speak. Okay, so what, what you have to do is you have to, you have to basically put your hand up and say, I'm financially vulnerable, I need money from yeah, your Yeah, but what Pat made very clear today, that the two ways, if you're a pay-as-you-go customer and you're struggling, the two ways that you get money is through Mavs or the St. Vincent to Paul. Yes. It's not to, not to them. Like, yeah, that is, that okay, is, so it, let them make back in there. That is completely unjust. And it's also unworkable. The Taoiseach is kind of shepherding people towards the community welfare officers and an additional needs payment. I mean, you'd be waiting more than half an hour on the phone to get through there at the moment. And the number of people who are going to need payments, I mean, the offices will be crammed full and the queues going out the door. There needs to be, for example, pay-as-you-go customers at the moment. There, you can't be disconnected on a bank holiday or a Saturday or a Sunday. That should be extended to include any day with with a, with a Y in it between here and the end of the winter. Isn't that a fair enough point, Alan Farrell, given the fact that we are looking at the most exorbitant cost of energy that we have ever seen, that saying to people, look, there's money out there, just go and find it, is not good enough right So this now. conversation took place with the Commission for the um, Regulation of Utilities, CRU, last week uh, in the Oireachtas Climate Action Committee. Um, and that very point was made by, by several members, myself included. And the point is, moratorium on disconnections should actually flow with the decisions that government made in the budget, which is to push everything out until the end of March, not so the end of February. No so if Minister Ryan, if Minister Ryan is Alan, proposing a complete moratorium, then I fully support that. Alan. But the point I was making in committee earlier today was how the super profits that are being made Mirren made the okay. point about the approaches that Europe are going to be making about taxation on, on those super okay. profits. I, That's something that I support and that can be played back into ensuring that there are further grants available and that government has a surplus to put right. into further supports in 2023. There was another uh, issue that came up today, um, Mirren, and that was the fact that gas prices on the wholesale market, they have dropped, haven't they? They've dropped, they've fallen quite a lot since the onset of the war. Why are they not being reflected? in the prices people are being charged. So if we can think back to when gas prices first started going up, it took a while for our retail bills to go up in response. And that's because companies do what we call hedging. So they tend to buy forward. So they're not actually buying the gas every single day off the market. Um, so I, what always happens is that when prices go up and down in world markets, that always feeds through to consumers eventually. The amount of time because it takes for it to I know the feeling out there, Maren, sorry to yeah. get across you, will be, uh, we always see them when the prices go up, but we don't see it as quickly when the prices come down. That's a feeling among consumers, I think, isn't well, it? Well, if you look at what um, prices have done on wholesale markets, they've actually gone up an awful lot more than retail prices have gone up, which would suggest to me that energy companies actually are using okay. their excess profits on the generation side to put downward pressure on our bills. Believe it or not, things could be even worse. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is... Um, we should see this coming through. I think what this is probably indicating to us is that the markets have just assumed that we're not getting any gas off Russia. That, so the, the what's going to happen with Nord Stream, what's going to happen, is it going to blow up, what's going to... Like, that's no longer having an impact. Now it's just purely being driven by what is the price of the gas from the places we are getting it. Right. And that's fed through to a, a depression in wholesale prices. And also just briefly, uh, Marun, the focus, from what I was really hearing today, the focus really isn't on this winter anymore either, is it? Our supply seems to be pretty secure, although I'll come to that off, Jim, warning in a second. It's next winter that they're more concerned about at this point. 
Yeah, so in terms of the security of supply, um, we are looking at a higher probability of blackouts than we've ever seen before this winter. But next winter, if we look at the demand, the way it's projected to go, and in particular the supply, mm. the supply that's projected to come off and the supply that's... We, we presume yeah. there'll be no Russian supply at that point. Well, this is... So when it comes to blackouts, okay. it's not about the gas, it's about the generators on the grid. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There are some large generators that are due to come off. If that all goes ahead, the next winter will be very, very, very tight. But let's wait and see what happens. OK, very briefly, uh, there was also today this warning from Ofgem, um, the um, regulator in the UK, about UK supplies, which mm. obviously is where we get a lot of our energy. Uh, should we be concerned, Daniel? Well, I mean, It's probably pretty obvious if the whole world's having issues, the UK would have issues too. I would have thought that anything happens in the UK were going to be affected. But I also would think as well, you know, the kind of reassurance that we're getting from the likes of Eamon Ryan take them with a pinch of salt. You kind of have to be very, very wary. I think that's, I think that's very unfair, Why? Daniel. And I, well, I mean, firstly, he's at European energy ministers' meetings on a very regular basis, including yeah. on Friday. But the other side of it how is... How many amber alerts have we had this year? Uh, well, how many... How many uh, what percentage of our supply of gas comes from the UK, Daniel? You tell me. But Zero. Really? You get 75% of our gas from Norway. It happens it to come through, through, through the, the United UK. Kingdom. It comes through the UK. But the point I'm making... Are you making, saying that, are you saying that the, the pressure in the UK will have no impact on us whatsoever? No, OK. So there's loads of processes and procedures between, so no impact our, whatsoever, between what our grid and the United Kingdom. But what should be borne in mind... Sorry, no impact. You're answering what I asked a simple question. Should will be, it have an impact or not? Like? What should be borne in mind so is the gas... Not the, the key point, the key in point Ireland here is actually to Northern here. Ireland and the Isle of Man. Not okay. 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 Simple, simple question, can't even answer it. Like. They've said, Liz Truss has said today that she's going to have to try and bolster security mm -hmm. and supplies of energy in the UK. I think that after is what where happened our to Nord Stream, gas comes from. I think what happened to Nord Stream Surely is if an, they have an issue, we have an issue. It I think the obvious, obvious I think Alan. the obvious indicator is that if what happened to Nord Stream can happen under the noses of four NATO countries, uh, then clearly... 
the rest of okay. Europe is concerned so about just such briefly, attacks. You've no concern about there being issues with supply have, in the UK? I have the same level of concern that I had when the, when, uh, the um, CRU came before the committee last week, and, or th three weeks ago, excuse me, and said that there were slightly higher probabilities of uh, blackouts than there were last year, and there were none last year. Oh, it's right, not look. a probability, it's a possibility. And there's a whole other discussion about how we are prepared for that, but I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there for now. My thanks to Maren Lynch. The rest of the panel are going to be staying with me as we take a look at Ireland's sea defences after a mystery underwater incident in the Baltic Sea. Do stay with us. Back. Well, Ireland is being warned by maritime experts that it is time to buff up its sea defences. It comes a week after a number of mystery explosions hit the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Fingers were immediately pointed at Russia, but the Kremlin denied any involvement. So why does this type of hybrid warfare matter to Ireland? Well, three quarters of the cables and pipelines in the Northern Hemisphere go right by our waters. That includes a staggering 97% of all global communications. So bank transactions, business operations, and even internet access. Minister Simon Coveney has denied that Ireland is a weak link when it comes to this. So is he right? Daniel McConnell, McBarry, and Alan Farrell are back with me. And I'm also joined by independent TD Cahill Berry. You're all very welcome uh, to the programme. Cahill, I'm going to start with you. Uh, what do we mean when we talk about hybrid warfare? What does so, that term mean? Yeah, so hybrid warfare is basically, it's a type of conflict which is below the, the, the recognised threshold of conflict. So it's not a kinetic operation where people are shooting at each other. It's a kind of a deception type operation where you don't really know who did the task and you try to attack people's centre of gravity rather than a frontal assault. So it doesn't really involve soldiers. It involves sneakiness and subterfuge. And that's pretty much what we saw in the Baltic Sea there last week. All right, and Daniel, your paper this today actually did a feature on these cables that a lot of people just won't even be aware exist. Mm. Where exactly are they and are they physically quite vulnerable? Um, so they're very close to Irish waters, kind of. So if you look at it towards the kind of the southwest of the country and they kind of head off towards uh, the United States, Simon Coveney says we're not a weak link. He's absolutely 100% wrong. We are so badly funded when it comes to our defences <clears throat> and there's even this quirk in the legislation which it's actually not our naval service who are in charge to look after these infrastructure. It's on Garda Síochána, which seems utterly peculiar. And, what and just, just describe for people at home how important these cables are. Like, what well, they, does it mean if they are attacked? Well, I mean, the, the fundamental system upon which all our lives, connectivity, bang, as you said, pretty much the internet would stop working. These are the connections between the United States, Europe and Ireland and everything else, and they would simply stop working. And ultimately, we saw... like, And not just here in Ireland. No, but they, they're linking, like, every part of the world, essentially. So and this is international infrastructure massive. in our waters. Yeah. And we are the weak, and we are a weak link. Think back to when Russia was looking to do these exercises before the war in Ukraine even kicked off. We didn't even have a, a sufficient, we don't have a radar system to monitor. We rely on the generosity of our neighbours to patrol our waters and patrol our skies. This is not a viable or tenable situation. We have promised that, you know, this commission on the future of the Defence Forces has obviously, you know, you know, committed to building all these things and building up the infrastructure and also investing in the actual, the pay that, that our troops get. But we are so far behind, and Cahill will speak to this much more credibly than I will, we are not at the races. And to say we're not a weak link is an insult to the Irish people. 
Uh, Carl, bring me through <coughs> the threat level at the moment. Is there a threat to these um, cables potentially, or, or do we just not know? Yeah, well, look, basically, uh, absolutely. And I'd say that we're not a weak link. We're actually the weakest link. So of the EU27, Ireland is a complete outlier and there is a threat and it's not just the data cables and I'd sum up the data cables and their importance by just saying that, that the cloud is not in the sky, the, the cloud is actually at the bottom of the sea. And, and it, as it stands, how are we in Ireland, because it's our responsibility to protect these, how are we protecting them? Uh, very, very poorly. So we have a very limited capability to monitor the surface of our home waters. So our naval service are down three ships already this year. They only have six ships left and are down 300 crews. So we have limited capability to monitor the surface of our home waters and we have absolutely none no capability to monitor what happens below the waves. So we, no we, capability no, whatsoever. So as a maritime nation, we are the only EU country without any sonar capability to detect what's happening below the sea, and, or below the waves, I should say. And the, the deterrent factor <clears throat> just isn't there. And so the, anybody can do whatever they want with our cables. And does it, does it make us look kind of differently at that, you know, um, exercise, the Russian exercises that were meant to happen off the Irish coast that were thwarted by Irish fishermen? Do we look at those kind of differently now? Well, I hope we looked at things differently at the time when it happened back in January. And Daniel's 100% right. The area where it happened, the exercise, was the porcupine bite. And there's a, a very high density and concentration of data cables just there. But it's not just the data cables. There's three gas pipelines coming into Ireland and an electricity interconnector. So our energy security is absolutely in intrinsically linked to these cables as well. And what was even worse, um, and just, sorry, very so quick, I, just very quickly, the budget announced a 67 million increase in defence spending, not one cent for, sub, for subaqua uh, monitoring. Alan Farrell, okay. it actually sounds a little bit embarrassing, <clears throat> Can I start it? with some corrections? Um, the first one is that we do patrol our own waters and we do patrol our own skies and we're not reliant upon our neighbours. For interdiction of high-flying aircraft, we are. But that is not what you said. What you said that we, were, we are uh, reliant upon the generosity of our neighbours, I think is what you said. So who spotted That's the, Russians, the first Alan? correction. Who spotted the Russians, Alan? That's the first correction. Um, the other point in relation to... Kenny hasn't answered a question. Who, because who it's not the Russians? relevant. It is relevant. No, it's not. It's not relevant. The RAF so, were the ones who spotted so, the Russians off our... So the, not, the, not the other major development in recent speak, years, speak which, I think, like. which I think... Well, on, Alan. Which I think truth. is very important is actually that, to recognise what is in the Commission for the Defence Forces and the decision that was made okay. in the, prior just, to the budget yeah. and during the budget. And the other correction is actually in relation to the total ex increased expenditure, which I think Danny said was about 60. Was 67 it? million was the increase so, in the, in the defence budget last week. So it's actually uh, quite a bit more. Um, so the capital budget alone is now, um, we, the total okay. budget is up to 1.17 uh, billion. Uh, okay, but it represents an increase of 146 okay. million euro on the capital side alone. So, okay, a lot of these figures are you know, lost and people are No, know, what people want to hear about is whether... Or, or 1 people billion doesn't hear, really make any difference to most people at home. People want to hear about whether is, we have capabilities stands, to defend our waters. As it stands totally today, are those cables protected sufficiently? So it really depends on what, what, you're, uh, what, you're, what you mean by sufficiently. Are we capable of patrolling our waters? We, we, first of all, no, that's, foremost, that's, we not, have, that's not the question. We have I a, a body of water eight times the size of our country yeah. to patrol. It's but huge. are these particular cables, these incredibly important pieces of infrastructure, are they adequately protected as it stands, do you say? Clearly not, because under the nose of four NATO countries, Nord Stream was uh, broken in four different places. So clearly the sort of uh, hybrid, we, sorry, Cal, the sort of hybrid wife warfare that Cahill talked about mm. is being done under the noses of a founding member of NATO, Norway, 
and under three others on their doorstep. So you have to ask the question if that's, so does that the, mean sort of, if that's the sort of warfare that is going to be perpetrated by a country, we're going to assume yeah. it's Russia. So are you sorry, well, then are you we saying, have to Alan, be very, very we, careful and we have we to make sure that we invest that? appropriate. Well, I think it's very difficult, but a presence on our seas on a constant basis is, of course, going to be extremely important. Uh, we have a number of new vessels coming, as Cahill will know. There's two new vessels that are coming next Captain. year. There's two new uh, aircraft, two new CASA aircraft being delivered next year as well, uh, okay. which, will, which will have a further extension. Now, those aircraft are fitted <coughs> with state-of-the-art technology, okay. as, as are our, our, our other ships, which do have sonar capabilities, but admittedly only in their near vicinity. OK, Mick, um, are you concerned at all that we're a bit of a soft touch here, that we are, as Cahill says, not a weak link, the weakest link? Well, certainly if uh, gas supplies, electricity supplies... Uh, you know, fibre optic cables that are necessary for the internet uh, are under threat. That would be uh, an issue of concern for all ordinary people. However, I do want to make this point, right? Last weekend, we saw a record number of people in this country forced to live in emergency accommodation. And the government saying, where well, we don't have the cash to sort it out. Last week in Cork, in the university hospital, so you... we saw a situation where there was huge overcrowding um, you know, really a stressful, difficult situation for the patients yeah. and the staff and the government. And, the government and, and sorry, Mick, but how, I think a lot of people would say that situation out? in Cork Hospital would be a hell of a lot worse if there was another HSE cyber attack like we saw last the, year. The point, so. I'm, the point I'm making, Kira, is this, is that uh, I think that there is an agenda at the moment that is being played, which is about massively increasing... Uh, Irish defence spending. I've no problem with spending extra money on sorting out the issue of low pay in the defence forces. But, uh, you know, the idea of massive increasing expenditure in arms so and military, military hardware, th there's a real issue here. Should we not now, defend if, ourselves, if, if there's an issue with the, um, uh, with, you know, gas supplies okay. and oil supplies, we have to look at that. But let's stand back and but look it's, at the it's big picture that. here too. Okay, look, I want to uh, go to Naomi O'Leary, who I spoke to yesterday, the Europe correspondent with the Irish Times, because there has been other uh, sabotage incidents across Europe in recent years, and she updated us on those. Um, the kind of attacks differ. Sometimes they're of suspected state origin. It's considered a tactic of hybrid warfare to go after targets like that. Sometimes it's suspected criminal um, uh, uh, origin. And sometimes it's difficult to distinguish between one and the other. Um, so where the line is drawn between state and criminal attacks. And then in other cases, it's simply a mystery who was behind it. And that's the case uh, for two uh, series of major uh, sabotage incidents in France on uh, on fiber optic cables. One of them happened earlier this year. It, uh, it An organized team dug up and sabotaged crucial backbone internet cables that, that connect different regions of France for internet. And this caused a blackout for thousands of customers. Um, and the way that these attacks were done was clearly coordinated and very well planned. It happened overnight. And the ways that the cables were destroyed was also designed so as to make them difficult to repair. They actually had sections missing. Um, so somebody had to know exactly where to hit. They had to have the information about where these cables were. And the attacks happened simultaneously overnight. So that means multiple teams working at it. So that points to something that's highly organised. It's a total mystery who was behind it. Uh, to this day, it's under investigation. But it does illustrate how, you know, a determined 
um, adversary can cause damage to cr critical civilian infrastructure like that. And there was another attack, wasn't there, in the Netherlands and one in Estonia. Bring me through those briefly, if you could. Um, the, uh, the massive cyber attacks that hit Estonia in 2007 are really considered a kind of a landmark in the history of what we call hybrid warfare now. So what that was, was at a, at a during a period of tension, when the local Russian-speaking population of Estonia was rioting due to a controversy over the removal of a uh, Soviet uh, Union-era monument, uh, suddenly all sorts of critical infrastructure in Estonia was hit by waves of massive cyber attacks. So that included the media, um, uh, banks, online banking system, the government web pages, uh, really an attempt to sort of take everything offline. And in response to that, Estonia actually uh, built up its digital resilience uh, very strongly, it became a digital first uh, society. And it's kind of a learning point, not only for that country, but also for the broader EU. Uh, are EU member states now looking at their critical infrastructure after what we've seen happen uh, with the Nord Stream? And is Ireland seen as vulnerable? It's triggered several European countries to assess where their vulnerabilities might be. It's seen as a signal of the vulnerability of energy infrastructure in the EU. So, for example, it happened on the day that a new pipeline was opening between Norway and Poland. So the immediate response was um, to, you know, ensure that the, that that pipeline would be uh, would be safe from such an attack. Um, and equally, other EU states are essentially the, the response is to assess where their vulnerabilities might be and ensure that they are they can do whatever they can to improve uh, monitoring and surveillance and security of those critical infrastructure assets. All right, we'll leave it there for now. Naomi O'Leary, as always, thank you. Are you confident, uh, Cahill, that we are taking this as seriously as other European countries who Naomi said there are now looking at critical infrastructure and seeing what could be vulnerable? Um, so we're not. Um, we can, of course, but uh, Ireland is the only country, for instance, without a national security strategy. So out of the EU27, we're the only country. And incredibly, it's not the Defence Forces or the Naval Service that are tasked with securing these critical pieces of infrastructure offshore. Um, it's actually the Garda Síochána, who has absolutely no capability. We have great respect for the Garda Síochána, but they have no capability from an offshore point of view. So we, we need to amend the legislation as well. So, Alan, you're saying, you know, we've got two new naval vessels coming on, but it's not their responsibility to look after these cables. It's uh, no. on Garda Síochána. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a quirk of legislation from well before my time, I, my, from Cahill and I chatting during the yeah. break, I believe. But does it not point to the fact that the government... So we will have to reassess that. But actually, I think... It isn't the aware the threat is, and isn't taking this seriously. The likelihood is that the legislation was passed at that time because it was a civil authority and we're a neutral nation. It may be something along those lines. I'd have to go up back and check but that. Would it need to be updated. But it will need to be changed, absolutely. Um, I know, for instance, on Friday there was an emergency meeting of energy ministers which, to which Minister Ryan went. My understanding is when Minister Ryan returned from that, he requested uh, assistance from the Department of Defence and the Defence Forces and they're in discussions. All right, look, That's my understanding as of, as of today. We're going to have to leave it uh, there for now. But my thanks to all of my panel for joining me this evening. Up next, we're going to speak to a man who has spent the last three months in a small boat as he sailed from New York to Galway. Sounds heavenly. <laughs> Peace. <laughs>
welcome back. For the last 112 days, Damien Brown has been on an extraordinary mission. He left New York in June with the aim to row all the way to Galway. And last night, he made it. Today, he got a hero's reception when he arrived in Galway Harbour. And Damien Brown joins me live now with this uh, incredible story. First of all, congratulations to you, Damien. It's a huge achievement, particularly because you set off at the start of this, with your friend. You were due to do it together and then he got airlifted for health reasons, didn't he? Yeah, on day 13 of the expedition, uh, unfortunately, we had no other choice but to get him off that boat because he has you know, medical history and this uh, the signs he was showing for us were indicating this was really serious. So we were like 500 miles, no, just over 500 miles off the coast of um, New York. So it was a big operation there, with, including the Coast Guard and everyone. And next thing I knew, I was lifting him onto the side of a 200-meter um, tanker. And, and I was on my own uh, with a, a long way to go. <laughs> and initially, you thought you were aiming to do it because it was the two of you in 55 days. So did you realize then this is going to take an awful lot longer? And mentally, how did you deal with that? The, it was so daunting when um, Fergus was his name when Fergus left because um, this route in particular is um, unforgiving uh, in, in its weather patterns. So if you have two people, the boat will never stop and you can keep rowing it right and never go backwards. But if you, when it was just me, what would happen was I would row two, three, four miles, whatever I was capable of. But the minute I stopped, the boat starts going backwards. Um, it might, depending on if it's currents or winds or boat, it'd go backward rapidly. So it's not, a, it's not a case of just, you know, oh, I'm here today and I'll start from here tomorrow. No, you'd be starting from where, somewhere that you already rowed, you know. Uh, so mentally, that's incredibly difficult over a long period to deal with. So it's just about trying to stay task focused and, and, you know, focus all my energy on the job that got me across the ocean, which was rowing simply. Yeah. And I'm just looking um, that's your partner and uh, your young child. Um, how did you deal with, with leaving them? You thought you'd be gone for 55 days. Suddenly you're gone for 112 days. And how did they mm. deal with it? That's a huge sacrifice to ask from them. Like, you know, and, uh, you know, even even when you're like I was preparing for this for three and a half years, uh, the project and the team was uh, even when you're preparing for a 55 day expedition, it's you know, it's a lot to ask of them. And then when you're out there, you just have no choice. So I'd be like talking to her through WhatsApp texts or um, voice notes, you know, and I'd be like, do you remember I said it was going to kind of be like maybe the end of August? Well, it's looking now like September. And that just kept getting extended and extended until I'd ended up in 112 days till I actually was able to get across but the weather was so difficult for me I just got no luck so it was constantly headwinds or counter currents or something it just you know it shouldn't take really 112 days but it did oh don't worry we're not going to judge you for it <laughs> absolutely not <laughs> uh, we see we saw footage there of the boat I mean it's a pretty small boat and, and you're a pretty big guy so I take it it wasn't that comfortable 
Ocean rowing is probably the most uncomfortable thing you can do in your life. It's incredibly uh, taxing in every way, shape and form. And then you're against an adversary in a fight that you cannot win. You can just survive and, and get through. Like So um, there's nothing, absolutely nothing comfortable about it. Um, but uh, uh, even from that hardship and the deprivation out there, you, you know, you learn a lot and you get a lot of perspective. So the rewards on the other side of it are magnificent. Yeah, because you did say, although it was grueling, it was the adventure of a lifetime for you. So why why did you do it? What was the motivation? Well, I, I come from a professional sporting background. So um, within that part of my life, there is a um, conditioning to like look for more from yourself, right? You know, through the environments, through the um, pressures of professional sport, you learn to get more from yourself by pushing yourself. And that's a, for me, that's a very fulfilling and very rewarding thing to be able to do, to have the levels of self-control and self-belief, or sorry, self-discipline to keep pushing yourself physically and mentally uh, i'm also just incredibly curious about uh, myself about the planet and um trying to realize my potential as a human and i find that i i get insights into that by doing things that are um extreme and adventurous and uh um taken in some of the world's most um, difficult environments if you want uh damien just very uh, finally um you made it all the way across the atlantic but you came a cropper on Furbo Beach yeah. in Galway, uh, but you got there in the end. More adventures ahead? I literally crawled onto Galway shores uh, out of the boat, but uh, I got there, as you said, and that's, uh, that's the most important thing, and I was, and I was safe. Um, no, I actually don't have a huge amount planned. I just... Um, All right. Uh, we we got to go there. Sorry to cut bit. across you. We're just running out of time there, but no congratulations. Butter. You should be very proud of yourself. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for speaking to Cheers, us. Thank you. Uh, that's it from us this evening. Our program is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight via MTV. But from all of us here, take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. 